0: This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. In this episode, CIIS professor, writer, and speaker Zara Zimbardo talks with author and journalist Amanda Montell about her latest book, Cultish, in which she argues that the key to manufacturing intense ideology, community, and us-them attitudes all comes down to language. Zara and Amanda discuss influence, the social science of cults, and how to recognize the language of fanaticism all around us. This episode was recorded during a live online event on July 14th, 2021. A transcript is available at CISpod.com. To find out more about CIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIS Pub Programs.
1: Thank you. And hello, Amanda. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> well, I am completely thrilled to be interviewing and in conversation with you. Um, and just thank you so much um, for joining us and for joining the CIS community to talk about your work and research that is um, stunningly timely. <laughs> Thank you so much for having
2: me. It's really, it's an honor. And I I got to be at CIIS in person two years ago for Word Slut. So it's nice to be back. Uh (laughs) In the ether. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And I just want to say that I have spent the last period of time reading your book and enjoyed it immensely. Um. That sounds strange. (laughs) When I say enjoy, I mean that I was completely fascinated, um, profoundly unsettled, (laughs) horrified and empowered. (laughs) So all of that blended together to a feeling of enjoyment and just profound gratitude um, for your work and your Research, which I am, which certainly for me and I imagine for so many others and many of the folks joining us now who have read Cultish, um, it is tremendously evocative. It stirred up and surfaced so much for me personally in terms of experiences that I've had or people who I love and care about have had um, of participating in cult-like situations or being very adjacent to it, or in relationship with it. And um, so yeah, thank you for this work, which really aids us in listening louder, so to speak, of just really dialing up the perception of um, cultish language so that we can hear it in a different way um, and question um, its impacts its logics, its style, how it's wielded, um, and what it makes possible and impossible. Um, so this is just an invaluable inquiry. Um, and thank so, you so much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, thank you. Um, so much respect for your work. And um, I appreciate how the title itself, <laughs> Cultish, is both naming a particular language like English or Spanish, Um, right? That we're learning to get to know um, through the lens that you're bringing throughout the book. And then also the ish being, right? Cultishness that feels really refreshing that in terms of getting us out of some yes or no binary, like, is this a cult or is it not? But that you're really inviting us to stretch and think and feel along a continuum of influence from relatively mild and benign to more severe and um, damaging. Um, So if we could open with um, just kind of like foundational, your central thesis, like what are we talking about when we're using the word cult?
2: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for um, picking up on that double entendre there. Obviously, as a word nerd, I um, I was kind of overjoyed when I... Came up with that one. <laughs> Actually, my mom and I both came up with it. I want to give her her due credit. Um, Cultish was, was on an early list of titles, um, potential titles for this book. And then later, independently, my mom suggested it. So my my parents are research scientists and they're, uh, they're persnickety, persnickety about credit. So I want to give that credit. Mm. But that's an important question. And I'm really glad that you led with it because the word cult can be really triggering and really confounding. Um, And actually, if it's okay, I was thinking I might just read like a four section, a four page passage from Cultish, um, sort of providing a pretty direct answer to the question that you asked. Um, So this comes from part one of the book. And I really wanted to dedicate part one of the book to the language that we all use to talk about cults so Mm. that we could then move forward um, with a conversation about how cults use language to talk about us and humanity and ideology. So this comes from part one of Cultish. Um, I'm about to bring up my mom again. (laughs) A couple of years ago, amid a conversation about my decision in college to quit the competitive and quite cultish theater program at my university in favor of a linguistics major. My mother told me that my change of heart really came as no surprise to her, since she'd always considered me profoundly unculty. I chose to take this as a compliment, since I definitely wouldn't want to be characterized the opposite way, but it didn't fully digest as praise. That's because, juxtaposed with the dark elements, there's a certain sexiness surrounding cults, the unconventional aspect, the mysticism, the communal intimacy. In this way, the word has almost come full circle. Cult hasn't always carried ominous undertones. The earliest version of the term can be found in writings from the 17th century, when the cult label was much more innocent. Back then, it simply, made, it simply meant homage paid to divinity, or offerings to win over the gods. The word culture and cultivation derived from the same Latin verb, cultus, and, um, and, sorry, and our cult's close, close morphological cousins. That is a tongue twister. The word evolved in the early 19th century, a time of experimental religious brouhaha in the United States. The American colonies, which were founded upon the freedom to practice new religions, gained a reputation as a safe haven where eccentric believers could get as freaky as they liked. The spiritual freedom opened the door for a stampede of alternative social and political groups, too. During the mid-1800s, well over 100 small ideological cliques formed and collapsed. When the French political scientist Alexis de Tocqueville came to visit the U.S. in the 1830s, he was astonished by how Americans of all ages, all stations in life, and all types of disposition were forever forming associations. Cults of the time included groups like the Oneida Community, a camp of polyamorous communists in upstate New York. Sounds fun. The Harmony Society, an egalitarian fellowship of science lovers in Indiana, how lovely, and my favorite, a short-lived vegan farming cult in Massachusetts called Fruitlands, which was founded by philosopher Amos Bronson Alcott, an abolitionist, women's rights activist, and father of little women author Louisa May Alcott. Back then, cults merely served as a sort of churchly classification, alongside religion and sect. The word denoted something new or unorthodox, but not necessarily nefarious. The term gained started gaining its darker reputation toward the start of the fourth great awakening. Uh, that's the term that some scholars uh, use to refer to the late 60s, early 70s when we saw so many cultish groups form. That's when the emergence of so many nonconformist spiritual groups spooked old school conservatives and Christians. Cults soon became associated with charlatans, quacks, and heretical kooks, but they still weren't considered much of a societal threat or a criminal priority not until the Manson Family Murders of 1969, followed by the Jonestown Massacre of 1978. After that, the word cult became a symbol of fear. The grisly death of over 900 people at Jonestown, the largest number of American civilian casualties prior to 9-11, sent the whole country into cult delirium. Some readers may recall the subsequent satanic panic a period in the 80s defined by widespread paranoia that Satan-worshipping child abusers were terrorizing wholesome American neighborhoods. As sociologist Ron Enroth wrote in his 1979 book, The Lure of Cults, the unprecedented media exposure given Jonestown alerted Americans to the fact that seemingly, seemingly beneficent religious groups can mask a hellish rot. Then, as these things tend to go, as soon as cults became frightening, they also became cool. Seventies pop culture didn't wait long to birth terms like cult film and cult classic, which described the up-and-coming genre of underground indie movies like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Bands like Fish and the Grateful Dead came to be known for their peripatetic cult followings. A generation or two after the Fourth grade Awakening, the era began to take on a nostalgic cool factor among cult-curious youth. Fringe groups from the 70s now boast a sort of perversely stylish vintage cachet. At this point, being obsessed with the Manson family is akin to having an extensive collection of hippie-era vinyl and band tees. At an L.A. salon the other week, I eavesdropped on a woman telling her stylist that she was going for Manson girl hair. Overgrown, brunette, middle-parted. A twenty-something acquaintance of mine recently hosted a cult-themed birthday party in New York's Hudson Valley, the site of numerous historical cults, including Nexium, as well as the Woodstock Music Festival. The dress code? All white. Filtered photographs of guests sporting ivory slips and glassy-eyed, oops, I didn't know I was haunted, expressions flooded my Instagram feed. Over the decades, the word cult has become so sensationalized, so romanticized, that most experts I spoke to don't even use it anymore. Their stance is that the meaning of cult is too broad and subjective to be useful, at least in academic literature. As recently as the 1990s, scholars had no problem tossing around the term to describe any group considered by many to be deviant. But it doesn't take a social scientist to see the bias built into that categorization. A few scholars have tried to get more precise and identify specific cult criteria. Charismatic leaders, mind-altering behaviors, sexual and financial exploitation, an us-versus-them mentality toward non-members, and an ends-justify-the-means philosophy. Stephen Kent, a sociology professor at the University of Alberta, adds that cult has typically been applied to groups that have some degree of supernatural beliefs, though that isn't always the case. Angels and demons don't usually make their way into, say, cosmetics pyramid schemes. Except when they do. More on that in part four. But Kent says the result of all these institutions is the same. A power imbalance built on members' devotion, hero worship, and absolute trust, which frequently facilitates abuse on the part of unaccountable leaders. The glue that keeps this trust intact is members' belief that their leaders have a rare access to transcendent wisdom which allows them to exercise control over their systems of rewards and punishments both here on life and in the a- here on earth and in the afterlife. Based on my conversations, these qualities seem to encapsulate what many everyday folks view as a real cult or the academic definition of a cult. But as it turns out, cult doesn't have an official academic definition because it's inherently pejorative. Rebecca Moore A religion professor at San Diego State University clarified during a phone interview. It's simply used to describe groups we don't like. Um, Well, I'll read a few more sentences. Uh, uh, Moore comes to the subject of cults from a unique place. Her two sisters were among those who perished in the Jonestown massacre. In fact, Jim Jones enlisted them to help pull off the event. But Moore told me she doesn't use the word cult in earnest because it's be- it's become inarguably judgment-laden. As soon as someone says it, we know, as readers, listeners, or individuals, exactly what we should think about that particular group. Mm. So I'll end there. Um, mm-hmm. I was trying to read slowly. It's very hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, certainly over the course of writing this book and researching it, my personal understanding and definition of the word cult has not become more definitive or more precise, but instead hazier and more nebulous. And that's why I tend to either get really specific when I'm talking about certain groups and call them a fringe religion or an alternative religion, if that's what I'm talking about, or I will do the opposite and sort of hedge and call these groups cultish or cult-like. And that's where...
1: Thank you. I appreciate taking that time to literally get on the same page. <laughs> um, and that as we go along and in the conversations that may ripple out um, for folks who are joining us here, um, talking about these topics, um, that's a great invitation to pause and be specific with what we're talking about. Like, what is the context and what are we? trying to foreground when, you know, with this pattern recognition, like what elements are present, what impacts um, keep recurring, you know, exactly. how do we, how do we and know what we're this is not to say, like, with?
2: this is not to say that um, we should strike the word cult from our vocabularies mm-hmm. or that, you know, we need to stop using it when describing say a cult followed fandom or brand like Soul Cycle, which I talk about in the book. Um, it's true that as conversationalists, we are naturally pretty savvy at being able to pick up on the context and stakes whenever a familiar word is invoked in conversation. So when one compares Peloton diehards to a cult, we know pretty automatically that the risk of, you know, being isolated on a commune somewhere is not actually on the table Um, But when we are earnestly talking about spiritual groups, religious groups, socio-political groups, throwing around the cult accusation willy-nilly, it can really shut down conversations because nobody wants to be told you're in a cult. And if your ideologies and your group affiliations vastly differ from others who have equally strong ideologies and affiliations, that cult label is going to do nothing but increase and widen that rift.
1: That's a great point, Um, as well as just bring up a lot of defensiveness. (laughs) It doesn't really inspire (laughs) curiosity or courageous and compassionate critical reflection on what might be going on.
2: You know what's funny um, though yeah. is that the people who I would have even like lighthearted, very warm, and empathetic conversations with about the word cult being being associated with their you know fitness studio or their whatever it was, um, there was a pretty consistent pattern. Those who got really really defensive when I brought up the word cult tended to be involved with groups that were slightly toward the destructive end of the cultish spectrum, and those who kind of laughed and were like, yeah, I can see it, um, they were members of groups that really kind of weren't as bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the second you start defending why you're not in a cult or why you're not a cult leader, you start start to sound like you're in a cult and that you're a cult leader. And I actually know this firsthand because of course the internet is a wacky place. And, um, I've had, uh, an Instagram follower thoughts about that language or to, mm. you know, sort Indeed. of ask me kind of as a joke, but also somewhat in earnest, like what's the difference between, you know, an Instagram or social media cults leader and what you're doing on social media. And I had to sort of like not really go there in Instagram messages because the second I tried, I knew I would just be digging myself into a hole.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting that, yeah, following and followers are (laughs) right built into that language and um, isn't it just yeah. And that's where, um, you know, your book. Um, that's one of the places where it ends in terms of reflecting that um, cult followings, cult membership, um, and what can be, you know, um, a whole range of cult dynamics are not so much happening where someone is, people are meeting in real life, um, but that it's vastly happening online and um incredibly enhanced, um, with algorithms and rabbit holes and, um, self-fulfilling bias, right. All of this. Um, I want to ask, um, briefly just what compelled you, um, to really dedicate your attention to looking at this topic of language and power and cultishness. Um, what drew you in?
2: that's, That's a good question. Well, I, I, my whole life have been interested for some reason in the relationship between language and identity and power. The ability to cultivate a whole identity and personality and relationships just based on the accent that you speak with or your word choice. Um, we take language for granted because it's invisible and seemingly harmless we grew up with axioms like sticks and stones may break your bones but words can never hurt you um, but I don't know I just I some combination of nature and nurture made me a very language focused curious person um so there's that side of it language is the lens through which I see the world but I also grew up with a cult survivor in the family <laughs> guess you could I don't know if you would identify as that former cult, former cult joinee against his will, Uh, labels. Um, But so my my dad was a teenager in the late 60s in, in 1969 when his dad forced him, because he was a kid, to join Synanon, which um, folks who were in California in the 70s and 80s might recognize. Um, It was this group that was actually founded in Southern California, but was based in the Bay Area by the time that my dad got there. It started as a sort of alternative drug rehabilitation facility for hard drug users, which were called dope fiends. And then later grew to accommodate so-called lifestylers or people like my dad's dad, who were hippies. My dad's dad was like a pseudo-intellectual, a card-carrying communist and wanted in on the blossoming countercultural movement of the era. And so he moved my my stepmother or step-grandmother and my dad and his two little half-sisters onto this Remote commune, what we would now recognize as sort of the classic cult, um, this sort of socialist utopia, which was on remote land um, in, in outside of San Francisco, um, where there were so many bizarre rules and rituals. There was a charismatic leader named Chuck Diederich. Um, The Synanon's most famous ritual was this nightly activity called the Synanon Game, where people would be divided into circles and forced to subject one another to rounds, hours of vicious interpersonal ad hominem criticism. Um, this was pitched as group therapy, but really it was a means of social control. And um, this type of practice can be found in so many other cultish groups from the People's Temple, a.k.a. Jonestown, to the modern-day troubled teen industry, um, which was actually, I learned, while researching this book, was actually based on Sinanon. So that's chilling. Yeah, so... Um, I grew up on my dad's stories of Sinanon, and uh, he was always so generous with his storytelling and sort of, I think, processing everything that had happened um, through that process of storytelling. And I remember that the most interesting part of his stories to me was always the special language that they used in Sinanon in order to create solidarity and an us-them dichotomy to instill ideology to obscure truths, to shut down independent thinking, and encourage conformism, all of the things that a cultish group needs to do in order to gain and maintain power. Um, in yeah, life there was divided into these two semantic categories, in the game and out of the game. There are so many special terms. Um, and so I grew up sort of like, well, Pretty skeptical and and independently thinking because my parents are also research scientists. So they're professional questioners and professional like proof finders uh, and proof seekers. Um, So I I grew up sort of like keenly sensitive to Synanon-esque cultish sounding rhetoric. And um, it's not like I would only listen for it while watching a Heaven's Gate documentary or something like that. I would hear it you know, in my high school theater program and in the startup where I worked in my early twenties and all over the place. Um, so that's really what planted the seed of my really lifelong fascination, Mm. um, with the relationship between language, power, relationships, identity, cultishness. (laughs) Mm. Thank you.
1: Um, And with what you just shared, I mean, those seem to be key um, features or characteristics that you're tracing and tracking across a really wide range of contexts from multi-level marketing and fitness and wellness um, to Scientology to some of the more um, um, extremist cults to QAnon. But, you know, of those elements of creating us versus them inside and outside, those who get it, those who don't, um, some kind of siege mentality. And um, something that um, is so, again, like fascinating and disturbing is the way that um, this shared language and bonding that is created can be both used to become kind of like the ideological ground that people are standing on, while also destabilizing them and making them doubt themselves and doubt their own knowledge, um, their intuition, um, with all of the kind of gaslighting that can go on. And that was something that I found particularly chilling throughout the book, again, with, you know, personal examples um, coming to the surface, how certain terms, certain concepts, um, certain kind of like wink code words Um, can create a kind of a warm community of shared understanding that can be liberatory, that can be in the service of healing or of social change. And then those same terms can get wielded in a way that can be abusive, policing, um, or justifying mistreatment for people who have become heavily emotionally, psychologically, financially invested in whatever the community is. And, um, The I'm wondering if we could hang out for a bit with this concept of thought-terminating cliches, Um, coined by psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton in the early 60s, because you return to this again and again from different angles and from different contexts. Um, What is a thought-terminating cliché, and how does it function, and how can we... Be sensitized to it to them yes
2: well this is one of the key elements of cultish language it's one of those things that once you became become aware of it you won't be able to unhear it so a thought terminating cliche again i wish i'd come up with it uh it's the perfect label for this phenomenon which um you'll find everywhere also known as a semantic stop sign there are these stock mm. expressions that are easily memorized, easily repeated, and aimed at shutting down independent thinking or questioning. So, as you mentioned, um, questioning is the enemy number one for a cult. Um, they're trying to accomplish things that can't be accomplished if people are allowed to express dissent and push back and weigh in individualistically on what's going on. Um, so you need a robust Glossary of thought-terminating cliches to make sure um, people are not able to to do that to express that pushback. So examples of thought-terminating cliches that we might hear in our everyday lives include things like, "Well, boys will be boys," or "Well, everything happens for a reason," or um, "You know, it is what it is. It's all in God's plan." Um, and expressions like that are really compelling because it's work to think and it's a relief not to have to. And they alleviate cognitive dissonance or the uncomfortable discord you feel in your mind when you're holding two conflicting ideas in there at the same time. Um, so let's come up with some cultish examples. Um, and in those contexts, these can be a lot more destructive and nefarious. So in Sinon, for example, where everybody is physically isolated and their lives are being dictated by this one person at the top, this guy named Chuck Dietrich. Um, If someone in Synanon wanted to question, you know, why do we have to play the game, the Synanon game, every single night? Or why aren't kids allowed to go to outside schools? Um, Or, you know, why do we have to shave our heads? Why do we have to be reassigned new Synanon partners? Um, There was a thought-terminating cliche that could be served on command, and it went, act as if. And it was this imperative to... Act as if you believed in this policy that Chuck Diedrich put in place until you did. Because if you're feeling dissonant about it, well, that's a you problem. This is the gaslighting that you were talking about. That's a you problem. And Chuck is a visionary and a genius. And he knows what's best. And so if you have an issue, act as if. And then you can tell your, you can sort of brainwash yourself, right? Like, you want badly to believe that this place where you've spent the past 5 10 15 years is everything that it would promised it would be you don't want to have to cut your losses you don't want to have to create conflict and so you're going to use act as if as a cue to put that cognitive dissonance and that dis- and that you know descent to bed um In a group like Nexium, if folks binged the Nexium docu series like I did, you might recognize thought-terminating cliches that Keith Raniere would use. Um, Things like, "Well, don't let yourself be ruled by fear," or dismissing valid concerns as limiting beliefs Um, in Jonestown and so many different cultish groups throughout history and the world, um, a thought classic thought terminating cliche is it's all the media's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, blame the media. So, um, thought even fake
1: news, or,
2: <laughs> fake news. Yeah. And that's an example of, of loaded language. Right. Uh-huh. So, um, there are, oh, there are so many examples of that, but, um, yeah, the media is a classic, classic scapegoat. Um, and, and it, it's, you know, it's tricky and this is, what toxic relationships are in general whether Mm -hmm. you're in a toxic one-on-one relationship or in a toxic relationship with the group you're in like there's always some truth to what's going on there if Uh there weren't you would you would never have joined you would never have stayed and so you know it's like we do need to express skepticism toward the media to a degree we do need to you know check preconceived notions that we have in our minds about what our limits are and what we can achieve or can't achieve. Like we, there's a little bit of truth there. Um, but when you have these stock expressions that are there to shut you down, anytime you have a question, that's a red flag because anything legitimate will stand up to scrutiny.
1: Mm. So powerful. Um, one other, um, I mean, again, like you said, it's like, can't unhear it because they can be so ubiquitous. And some of these same cliches or kind of pseudo proverbs can be used to open up some critical inquiry or reflection as well as to just shut it down. Um, you know, or drive the blame into oneself. And that was one example that stood out to me when you were describing the Shambhala community mm. and the thought meaning cliche of, um, why don't you go sit with that, right? And of course, right, all the meaning there that sitting with something can be obviously a profound ongoing spiritual practice to really question what's going on, see the different layers of something. Whereas this was then starting to, be wielded in a way when someone when anyone was um, holding up a mirror um, to forms of exploitation that was going on to say like, well, actually go find that wrongness in yourself,
2: in yourself. Um, Yes. And it's, you know, it it bears mentioning that language only has meaning and only has power within context. mm -hmm. So just, you know, if you go about your daily life and you hear someone say, you know, well, why is sit with that? Um, just the once, <laughs> that's not some sort of dog whistle or, um, a really serious red flag that that person is trying to exploit you. Um, but again, when these phrases are being repeated systematically and you feel yourself sort of halting that independent thought process, um, or, or you feel like the argument is going nowhere after that mm-hmm. phrase is invoked, um, that's a sign that this is uh, closer to a semantic stop sign than anything else. Right. Yeah.
1: And I um, ap- appreciate how you also name the term brainwashed as a form, as a semantic stop sign that like, not only is it, yeah, it can be that it can be unhelpful, it can be harmful, and it can just be othering when we're talking about um, cult recruitment, um, people's different experiences and the whole, along the continuum of influence, that when we're saying, oh, those people or that person is brainwashed, right, it's also talking about oneself. It's like, well, I wouldn't be prone to that. I wouldn't be so susceptible. Um, that is you know, this scary other thing that's going on that I can't relate to instead of saying, how could that be happening? What can I actually relate to? And what are these shared conditions of susceptibility that we are all in yeah. <laughs> um, where cult-like behaviors, right? And cultish um, language, right? Like you asked this question, like, why does it seem like everyone sound, er- everyone's talking like they're in a cult these days? Um, you know, is just proliferating. Um, And I, you know, reading your work also just kept feeling so much empathy for how deep our needs are for belonging and for meaning. Um, And that's such a deep part of what makes us human and um, is such a huge um, dimension of our lived experience that charismatic leaders Um, or different marketing schemes can tap into and um, exploit. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about these terms, um, which you got into with the deep dive into multi-level marketing (laughs) and some of the faux feminist empowerment and so much going on there, but of um, toxic positivity and love bombing. Yes. What is that, and you look at it in different contexts, but in that one, it really, <laughs> really shown.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, well, thank you for bringing up the brainwashing topic. Um, yes, brainwashing can be used to sort of morally divide us and, we, we do it as a protective mechanism, mm. we, we say, like, I would never end up in a group like that, they were brainwashed, um, but really brainwashing is nothing but a metaphor, you know, it is the explanation that prevailing wisdom and the popular media tends to give for why people wind up in cults, but it's not a real or testable phenomenon. And again, it's often used just to shut down a conversation and prevent us from asking the more interesting question of what is really motivating people's behavior. And it's all these other things, (laughs) all these other really, really interesting things um, that have a whole lot to do with language. Um, But yes, so Americans have a distinct and consistent relationship to cultishness over time. um, And there are a lot of reasons for that. But uh, one of the reasons is that we, um, you know, we, our, our history stems from the capitalist, Protestant ethic, um, which is what informed our value of the American dream. Um, We are optimists and seekers um, born and bred as Americans, um, and that in combination with a whole bunch of other social and cultural factors has um, made us, you know, attracted to organizations and leaders who are making grandiose promises that you can achieve anything you want. Um, and again, that doesn't have to be cultish, that promise. It isn't totally true. (laughs) Not, not everybody can accomplish anything just when you put your mind to it. Um, but when it gets cultish is when, um, well, multi-level marketing is one of the contexts in which it gets cultish. And I decided to put that industry in the book, um, first of all, because people are are always constantly asking me about it, but also because I think the multi-level marketing industry is this sort of really extreme case study in toxic positivity and the prosperity gospel that imbues all of American workplace culture in general Um, but the way that the multi-level marketing industry exploits this American value for you know productivity and progress and self-improvement is um, well it's I don't know how far I want to go back, but you you asked about the language of, um, you know, pseudo-feminism and how the multi-level marketing industry exploits that. Um, So since the dawn of the modern direct sales industry in the 1940s and 50s, um, the industry has always targeted non-working wives and mothers as the primary sales force. Um, The reason why is very interesting. I won't get into it, but um, so while in the forties and fifties Tupperware, which is like the OG multi-level marketing company, MLM was pitched as like the best thing to happen to women since they got the vote, this opportunity to be a businesswoman to earn a full-time living with part-time work from home. Um, Now, multi-level marketing companies, and Tupperware is still around, um, pitch themselves as an opportunity for girl boss, boss babe, mompreneurs to become part of an empowering movement. So um, the precise terms have changed, but MLMs have always capitalized on whatever commodified pseudo-feminist language was trendy at the moment to convince women that they should be a part of not only this industry, but a movement, a community. And um, that's part of what makes these companies so cultish is that they're not just sort of scammy and predatory. Um, They are missionary in character. They are helmed by these charismatic leaders that members come to revere and worship almost in a religious way. Um, There is such intense pressure in these groups that, truly codependent, life-consuming relationships start to form when you invariably do not become a millionaire mompreneur within a year like they promise, because mathematically it's not possible the way that these pyramid scheme-esque organizations are structured, they will do what these other cultish groups that we've been mentioning before do, they will gaslight you into believing that you didn't try hard enough. You aren't really dedicated to the American dream like you should be, because this is a good system, and a good system always works. Um, and the exit costs are incredibly high because of these high-pressure, boundaryless relationships that have formed since um, everything, since everybody's financial success depends on the financial success of the recruits below them. So, um, yeah, I decided it was important to focus on the language of multi-level marketing, not only because it is fascinating in and of itself, but it says something about our workplace values in America Mm. at large. Mm.
1: Yeah. And with the prosperity gospel, um, which I've really been, I'll say sitting with of the Protestant prosperity gospel that, um, Financial well-being and physical well-being is seen as God's favor. Um, it's incredible to see how many iterations there are of that in secular or non-religious spiritual contexts. Um, I was reminded of years ago when The Secret was making a big sensational splash, such expert branding there. It's a secret. Um, with the, the Secret. Law. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Got hooked. Um, you know, and some people close to me did actually get really hooked and enthralled with that, um, of that, uh, the saying, what was it like ask, believe, receive, right. That you are harnessing the power of your mind and imagination, perhaps tuning into divine frequencies and calling in, um, what you want and manifesting it. Um, you know, like imagining your hands on the steering wheel of the new car um, that you want. Um, And this plays out in so many different ways that is not named as Protestants. Um, And. um, Yeah, I want to ask, like, how how does that ideology, um, play out in some of the more like in the wellness, um, and metaphysical, you know, these kind of like, we're like cutting edge science meets ancient wisdom, um, type of industries.
2: Mm. Yeah. Well, in our culture at large these days, I'm hearing this new age metaphysical meets pseudoscientific vocabulary Mm -hmm. in, so many spaces. Um not only spiritual circles like, you know, folks who love the secret or folks who gather in like divine goddess like moon ceremonies or whatever. But um I also hear this language, yeah, in, in boutique fitness studios like SoulCycle. Um also I'll hear it in like evangelical spaces, like sort of hipster celebrity attended mega churches um all that are kind of trying to brand themselves as like jesus is cool for the young generation i'll hear them even in startup culture and this language i'll I'll name some key buzzwords and people will recognize it i'm talking you know metaphysical mystical sounding language like holistic actualize paradigm shift missional intentional organic vibrations frequencies um this is language that you hear in just so many spaces and so many different contexts. And in spaces like um, Soul Cycle, let's say, and wellness spaces, which have come to serve a truly religious role in people's lives. Um, you know, as our culture, and particularly younger people, move away from traditional religion. They still crave a spiritual experience, and they still crave a community experience. And so researchers at places like the Harvard Divinity School have found that folks literally name Cycle as their new church, or literally name CrossFit as their new religion. Um, and you might think, well, No, like, CrossFit is not a religion. Um, But actually, as tricky as it is to define the word cult, uh, experts have been arguing for even longer about how to define a religion. Um, It's very tricky. Uh, I sort of like what the theologian and writer Tara Isabella Burton says, um, which is not what religion is, but what religion does, and that's to provide for things Community, spirituality, ritual, and meaning. Um, wait, community, meaning, purpose, and ritual. <laughs> and those things don't necessarily have to involve God at all. You can find them in your soul cycle studio, you can find them in your wellness circle. Um, you, you can certainly find them in your evangelical megachurch and you can even find them in the startup where you work. Um, the boundaries separating spirituality and business and celebrity and recreation are really blurred, (laughs) um, so, yeah, I'm I'm touching on a lot of things here. I mean, the prosperity gospel shows up in all of these places. We hear it in everyday phrases like God help, helps those who help themselves. And, you know, this idea of monetary blessings, like, like, oh, I'm so blessed to have this home. It's like the connection between your wealth and your self-improvement. And God is not natural. It was created by the Protestant ethic. Um, and as Americans, again, we fetishize self-improvement. It's the perfect religion for us. Um, even if we're young people in 2021 who reject mainstream religion or ideas of God, um, we still want to participate in the spiritual. We still want to participate in the woo-woo. And we can do that in a space like Soul Cycle or... In even in our workplace um, and the language like holistic and actualized and frequencies and whatnot um, can make us feel really connected spiritually to others who are using the same vocabulary words. It's mm-hmm. like a new religious vocabulary for us, um, but it also has a downside. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to, but it can be um, it can be tricky. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about that if you want.
1: Indeed. <laughs> We could definitely (laughs) talk for hours and hours about this. Um, I um, wanna bring up a portmanteau that I recently learned or last fall was introduced to of the term conspirituality um, and have been definitely logging some hours listening to the conspirituality podcast, um, but of this combination of conspiracy theories and spirituality. And um so important to explore. And I was deeply rattled, um, it was last fall, <laughs> listening and tuning in to the phenomenon of conspirituality as it relates to QAnon and what might be called soft QAnon or pastel QAnon, and how and this um overlap, um, with so many communities and fields, right. In healing, wellness, spirituality, etc., that so many people I know are a part of, um, and to see the ways that this ling here, the ways that this language was circulating. And I just want to read a quote from you, <laughs> um, saying, um, Because New Age ideas and conspiracy theories have overlapped in such inauspicious ways over the past decade, um, giving us the whole new category of cultish belief, termed conspirituality, um, many of QAnon's central buzzwords fall into the very same category of New Age vernacular, paradigm shift, 5D consciousness, awakening. This is no accident. The familiar, innocent-sounding words work to reel in and bond recruits without revealing too much. And also the language of like freedom, free thinking, I did my own research, um, all of this. And I think what really rattled me is the ways that um, to learn about ways that some of these major influencers, <laughs> um, progressive healing and spiritual folks, um, using this terminology and how slippery and dangerous it um, how slippery and dangerous it can be. and so I wonder if you could speak to that.
2: yeah, absolutely. well, you know, it seems like an unlikely combination at first. you have these stereotypical right wing extremist conspiracy theorists who believe the earth is flat and um, who are these, you know, Holocaust deniers and such? And then you have these, you know, or that
1: we're being controlled by the satanic yeah, pedophile so, cabal, right? So right. we
2: can maybe define spirituality in more precise terms. So um, it first emerged in formal writing in in 2011, recent, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's basically defined by these two tenets, the first um, classic to conspiracy theory ideology and the second classic to new age ideology, the first being that there is a sinister cabal of powerful forces secretly controlling the socio-political order And the second being that we as a culture are on the precipice of a paradigm shift in consciousness. So you'd think that these stereotypical conspiracy theorist guys, mostly guys, um, and these new agers who are interested in um, alternative healing and such, um, who are these like seemingly progressive, seemingly feminist mostly women, you'd think they might have nothing in common, but um, the cultural tumult that we're experiencing and have, especially over the course of the past five years during the Trump administration, in combination with all of the turbulence brought on by the pandemic and all of the lack of trust in government and healthcare and big business— Combined with social media algorithms have led these two camps to a similar, you know, media averse, anti-government, doctor wary place. Um, and the vocabulary words, the, the key vocabulary words of QAnon, which, again, like some of us might think of QAnon as this like one sort of denomination of of this big tent cult Um folks who, you know, believe that Hillary Clinton drinks the blood of children in order to remain young and other really extremist beliefs that is that's that's only one sort of sect of QAnon at this point because QAnon has really again mostly because of social media, become like a black hole sucking in every breed of conspiratorial ideology that exists in this culture. And there are a lot of them because conspiracy theories tend to surge during times of crisis. And the pandemic, in combination with the election, in combination with social media, that was a time of crisis. And we crave conspiracy theories sort of naturally as humans because we're interested in special knowledge, we're interested in answers, we're interested in closure, and conspiracy theories provide those things. Um, and because QAnon, again, I'm referring to it in the sort of big tense sense, because QAnon's key buzzwords um, are so broad, awakening, deep state, paradigm shift, um, folks can sort of project whatever they want them to mean onto them um, and not sort of approach them with enough skepticism to realize that they could serve as an on-ramp to more right. dangerous ideology. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really, for some, it's confounding that you would see fo- or people emerge like the QAnon shaman, if people remember the guy in the Capitol hard, during that awful forget. day who was wearing the headdress and... You know, he was very appropriative, but also he seemed like a spiritual guy, but he was this right winger. And you're like, this makes no sense. And QAnon has taken over so many yoga studios. And you're like, again, this makes no sense. But it really has a lot to do with these groups um, commodification of certain Eastern derived vocabulary words and ideas with a lot of scientific words and ideas with a lot of words and ideas purloined from feminist politics, like Mm -hmm. anti-vaxxers will say things like, you know, my body, my choice and forced penetration to talk about vaccines. Um, So yeah, language is really the material with which these extreme beliefs are fabricated. And it's entirely possible to be sort of like onboarding to QAnon Mm -hmm. um, online and not even really know it. Right. Right.
1: That was a big part of what rattled me so much, <laughs> right? Of having these like linguistic, um, yeah, different Venn diagrams really becoming a circle. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: I have. Um, t- it's become a hobby of mine, like actually making those Venn diagrams and posting <laughs> them on the internet.
1: <laughs> that is a great hobby. <laughs> um, and so... On continuing on this um, theme that's like in the what we could call new age, spiritual metaphysics, meets physics, healing, etc, um, for people who are finding great meaning and um, improvement of life issues or healing and connection um, in contexts where um, you know, part of the promise is to maximize one's self potential or to tap into these various higher powers. Um, What are some of the red flags? Like you've mentioned a number of them and your book is really this like amazing archive of red flags. Um, (laughs) But What are some of the ones to pay attention to where it's like, oh, something that was once medicinal is now becoming poisonous. How do I Mm -hmm. assess that? We yeah, them.
2: I think I think a couple of the major ones to think about are, um first of all, the the love bomb and then the bait and switch. You asked earlier for mm, me to talk mm, about mm. love bombing, um, which is, you know, this classic cult term that refers to when someone, upon first meeting you, will shower you with love and attention in order to make you feel really seen, Mm -hmm. like they're speaking uniquely to you, um, only to sort of go back on those promises later. Um, Anyone who's ever been in a toxic one-on-one relationship might relate to this experience where um, a charming narcissist who in a cult situation might be called a charismatic power abuser, um, might like shower you with love and attention and then um, take it all back later. And you're, you know, constantly working towards how you were treated in the beginning. But really, that was just a tactic of manipulation to suck you in. Um, So the love bombing and then the bait and switch, if you have been in something for a long time and you're realizing, like, the promises that were made so vehemently are not being delivered, um, it sounds obvious but that's a big one and and then the other the other big one is that you know anything legitimate will allow you to participate casually will allow you to have outside influences in your life but if your group affiliation whatever it is encourages you to cut people who don't agree with it or who speak ill of it or who aren't involved with it out of your life, if you find that it's monopolizing all of your time, um, if you find yourself unable to strip off the linguistic uniform at the end of the day, um, that can be troubling um, because, you know, I often say that the word sacred literally means set aside. And so I do not encourage people to disaffiliate with spiritual groups I think that that can be incredibly powerful for people like we don't want to be so cynical that the most enchanting parts of the human experience go away like we're irrational and communal by nature Um, and so participating in spiritual activities and groups is is really quite human but at the end of the soul cycle class or Mm -hmm. the the ceremony or the service or whatever it is, um, you need to have the ability to step back into another life, another identity. And if you're unable to do that, um, then that that's something worth looking at again.
1: Mm. Mm, I appreciate all of the nuance and care that you bring to these complex topics and complex situations and not, um, throwing out the mystical babies (laughs) with the mystifying bathwater. When we're (laughs) looking at ways that this language is used. No, I mean,
2: I live in LA. It's like, mm -hmm. if I'm not cool with a little mystical magical, I just, I wouldn't function well here.
1: (laughs) Um, One more question, which is, you know, a lot of times, um, as as we spoke about earlier with, with the term brainwashing, but people can be like, oh, who is drawn to a cult? And how is that not me? Or how could it be me? Um, But if we shift to be like, what are the conditions of susceptibility that we're all in, Mm. um, in terms of certain forms of alienation? um, You mentioned, you know, in terms of like distance from um, uh, healthcare, (laughs) government, religion, community, et cetera. um, what are some of the, yeah, conditions of susceptibility and or conditions that are making um, cults grow like, cultishness grow like yeah. mushrooms in the rain?
2: Right. So I think the the mythology that exists is that people who wind up in really destructive cults are desperate, disturbed, intellectually deficient. Um, but what I found instead, talking to so many scholars and survivors, was that the through line was not de- desperation, but instead extreme optimism, which is, again, this very American thing. Um, so it's kind of funny, while like cynicism might protect you from the lure of uh, sort of, you know, Nexium esque group, um, you might also die alone. So <laughs> it's good to, to be open to experience but also skeptical of experience. But I think it's sort of a combination of vulnerability due to a lack of institutional support. So one of the other reasons why Americans have such, such a consistent relationship with cultishness is because um, we are the exception to a pretty consistent pattern in, um, in all over the world, um, scholars have found that the higher the standard of living in a certain culture, the fewer believers you find, like supernatural religious believers. So the higher the life expectancies, the higher the education levels, the the better people are doing, um, the less they tend to need religion or spirituality. Um, the U.S. is this glaring exception to that rule, and one of the reasons this might be is because we don't have a lot of trust in the institutions that are supposed to provide us with support. If an American finds themselves very poor or out of a job or gravely ill, you know, they, they, there's not, you know, like they, we don't have what other cultures have, um, like universal health care and programs that are there to keep us healthy and keep us safe. And so... In order to fill those voids we look to alternative groups and some of them are exploitative and destructive and some of them are not so much um but the, where optimism comes in here is that if you are a cynic and you don't think that there are solutions to your problems or to the world's most urgent problems you're not going to wind up in a group like Nexium or Heaven's Gate because you're not going to buy what they're selling, and what they're selling is always something really positive. We're going to solve r- racism, classism. We're going to make you happier. Um, so it's this it's this combination of vulnerability with um, sort of resilience and idealism in the face of that vulnerability that can make someone attracted to cultish groups. And that doesn't necessarily have to be bad. You just have to approach them with the right combination of fact-checking and cross-checking and all of these things that we've been talking about, the the skepticism to keep you safe.
1: Well, and again, gratitude for... um... Your work that is attuning us to the language of fanaticism, so that we can also play these roles in our own agency to support each other um, to question what's going on um, with language and power um, and how deep this goes. So, thank you so much, Amanda. Thank Um, you.
0: And thank you to everyone listening. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, cii and connect with us on social media at c-i-i-s pub programs. C-i-i-s public programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA plus community, and all of them whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.